Our Bible teaching today is from Acts chapter 6, verses 7 through 15. Please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Then the Word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council, looking steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. This is God's word. Let us pray for the preaching and hearing of it. Heavenly Father, you are so good to have embraced us in your Son, Jesus. You give us your word to hear and to be changed by. I pray that you would fill Pastor Phil with your spirit and guide him in speaking truth to us. I pray that you would use this text for your glory and our benefit. I pray that you would renew our minds, excite our hearts, and lead us in living out your word in daily life. Be at work in us that we may be faithful in service and strong in the defense of the faith as Stephen was. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Recently, a, a missionary to Sierra Leone, which is in West Africa, was kind of chuckling over some of the American T-shirts that people were wearing in her country. They didn't uh, really understand English, and so were a little bit oblivious to the humor of some of the situations. For example, one guy was wearing this oversized uh, pink shirt with a big arrow pointing to his tummy that said, Baby on board. <laughs> and... Uh, I don't think any of you men would be man enough to wear a shirt like that, would you? <laughs> Why? Because we know English. Well, that guy was totally oblivious to the, the fact that what he was saying on his shirt uh, had no bearing or resemblance to reality. Well, the same was true of the Jewish leaders in this uh, chapter. They get really angry over the idea that Jesus is going to be replacing the temple. In fact, they end up killing Stephen over it. And all the while they are wearing proverbial t-shirts that point to Jesus. 
Uh, everything about that temple was a neon sign that was flashing, Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is here. Uh, Jesus is the Messiah. And in chapter 7, uh, Stephen is going to be showing how ridiculous it is for these Jews to be wearing these mini proverbial t-shirts that for hundreds of years have been pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, they had the t-shirts of the prophets. They had the t-shirts of the sacrifices and the priests and the cleansing rituals and the temple and all of the other ceremonial laws. And their proverbial t-shirts were saying life on board, but they were empty. They were bankrupt. They did not have Jesus. Uh, Now, I don't think we should see this as being obvious to them. I don't think it was obvious to them. Uh, It's obvious to us because Luke has pointed it out. I mean, the contrast that he points in this uh, chapter, I think, is really uh, remarkable. But just like that man in Sierra Leone, these people are blind to the contradiction. And I think part of the reason is that they're looking to the wrong indicators. Uh, They weren't bankrupt in many senses, Uh, Economically, this is probably one of the most prosperous times in the post-exilic history of Israel. In fact, when Titus conquers Jerusalem in 70 AD, it's just a massive amount of money and loot that he was able to haul off. And so it wasn't bankrupt in that sense. Their temple was one of the wonders of the world. It was a massive accomplishment that every Israelite took great pride in. And I've got to admit, it's nice to have a, a beautiful building. You know, one of the reasons that evangelicals give as to why they can't leave the liberal churches is because grandpappy, you know, contributed money to this beautiful building. And if it's a choice between being able to be a part of this that looks so respectable and so nice and going off into these little buildings packed with Jewish bodies in the first century, it, uh, it, it's not really a tough choice for some of those guys to figure out which way they want to go. And um, so they think it's Christianity that's bankrupt in that sense, unless they've got spiritual eyes that have been given to them. Nor should we think that Judaism was bankrupt in terms of intellectual horsepower. I stand in absolute amazement at the amount of information that some of those scholars in the first century were able to memorize. Many of the scholars there had memorized what today constitutes many volumes comprising the Talmud. They weren't written down back then. It was all oral tradition that had to be memorized. I, don't, I can't even fathom how one person can memorize so much material. And some of those scholars like Gamaliel and Hillel are famous to this day. And so there was that to be proud of. There was some incredible intellect that uh, was uh, in Israel at that time. Nor should we see Judaism as being bankrupt in terms of its numbers, its influence, and its impact. Josephus uh, tells us that there were Jewish synagogues in every major town of the empire, and that the Jews, in many cases, were in positions of, of influence. Rome gave numerous concessions to Israel that it did not allow and had never allowed to any other nation. For example, it allowed Jerusalem to tax, that's what they viewed it, as a tax of Jews in every nation of the world. You know, their tithe that was coming into the temple. And uh, they uh, were, in terms of government, connected uh, uh, internationally. And there was a Supreme Court that could hear appeals from every nation in the world. And so in a very literal sense, there was an empire within an empire. 
to such a degree that other nations were very jealous of what Israel had and uh, were pretty perturbed with what they had. They thought it was unfair. Uh, to the Jew, the apostles' call to come out from among them and be separate was a strange call because this was a dynamic organization with influence, and to leave it would be to join an organization that didn't appear to have a whole lot of influence. They'd only known one church. It was the Jewish synagogue. And so it took spiritual eyes to see the bankruptcy that had happened. You may remember Glenn's uh, sermon on Luke uh, 24, where these two disciples are talking to Jesus and asking him, well, don't you know about Jesus? Haven't you heard of all of the things that have happened to him in the last uh, couple of uh, days? And uh, Glenn pointed out it's a rather strange thing to be saying when you're talking to Jesus, but they did not recognize him. Their presuppositions had made them blind to the fact that they were talking to Jesus. Now, he may have looked different in, in some respects as well, but I'm sure they were blinded in many ways because he's dead. It couldn't be Jesus. You know, he's in the grave. What their presuppositions were doing was, was uh, hindering them from even giving that as a possibility. And uh, it was not until the Holy Spirit opened their eyes that they understood, well, I see a similar strangeness about this chapter. You know, in that last verse that was read, it says that they saw his face as the face of an angel. I mean, why would these people be putting to death somebody whose face is glowing like the face of an angel. It's not just the believers, it's the leaders here that recognized him as looking in some way like an angel. They couldn't discount the miracles that uh, he was doing. In fact, when you look at all of the contrasts between the frustrated, bankrupt Judaism and the, uh, the vibrant, living, full Christianity that uh, he describes there, it's a remarkable thing that they would put him to death. It's hard for the reader to miss the contrast, but they were blind to it. And so what I want to do is I want to uh, quickly look at several evidences of the emptiness and the bankruptcy of Judaism. We're going to apply it uh, uh, for today, and I'm only going to deal with Roman numeral 1 today, and then we're going to pick up, Lord willing, next week on Roman numeral 2. First of all, there were major defections from Judaism. Now, by itself, this doesn't prove anything, otherwise liberal churches would be empty. Um, but those who had spiritual eyes were beginning to vote with their feet, and when that happens, the leadership really ought to sit up and take notice. Verse 7 says, Then the word of God spread. Now, which word of God was it that was spreading here? It wasn't the New Testament, because the New Testament, there wasn't one single book of the New Testament had been written yet. That'd be a few years in the future. The word of God that was spreading was the Old Testament scriptures that they were preaching, right? And if Judaism is in opposition to this spread of the Old Testament scriptures, what does that leave them with? Not a whole lot. It left them with spiritual bankruptcy, and to this day, that is true. Uh, Judaism uh, affirms that they follow the Talmud. That's the distinguishing mark not the Old Testament. In fact, at many points, they disagree with the Old Testament. And so it says, And the word of God spread, 
and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And so the word was spreading like wildfire through Jerusalem. And it wasn't just the uneducated Jews that were becoming Christians. The next phrase indicates that there were a lot of defections amongst the priests as well. A great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now that last phrase there would be an incredibly powerful phrase to any Jew who read that because these are people who were in the know. These are people whose whole lives had been trained in what it meant to work in the temple. They would have been giving up their livelihood. They would have been giving up everything that their lives had revolved around. And so they would not have done that easily. Anybody who saw a priest leaving that for Christianity would sit up and take notice and say, what's going on here? Because in effect, that priest is saying, there's nothing left here in the temple for me to do. There's no longer any purpose for a priest, no longer any purpose for sacrifices. All of the things that I've been trained in, I'm now saying, are fulfilled in Christ. Jesus takes those things on for me. And it probably didn't help that the priests probably told them, hey, we were eyewitnesses to the fact that that temple curtain, as thick as a man's hand, was torn from top to bottom, 30 feet up in the air. I mean, that's God doing that. And so, in effect, God is saying he had no more purpose for the temple and for the sacrifices. Uh, He was opening the way uh, to heaven through Christ and his sacrifice. Notice in verse 7 that it says they were obedient to the faith. In the Greek, it's... It's emphasized there, the obedient to the faith. They were not obedient to a new faith. There was only one faith. Again, which scriptures were spreading? It was the Old Testament scriptures that were spreading. And so it's the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that they were being faithful to. Um, Christianity did not overthrow Moses and the prophets like Jews of that time, and many dispensationalists today like to affirm. And if somebody wants to appeal to verse 13, say, look, he was speaking against Moses and, uh, and, and, and this place, uh, notice that Luke says they were false witnesses. And we'll get to those verses uh, next week, well, probably the week after, uh, Lord willing. But uh, it was the fulfillment of what Moses and the prophets had been anticipating for a long time. It was Judaism that had left the faith. It was the early church that was faithful to the faith and was continuing what all these years they had been looking forward to and had been anticipating. And I think that's so significant because the way many Christians today pit the New Testament against the Old Testament, you would think that Christianity was a brand new religion. It is not. Judaism was the brand new religion. If you read the Talmud, you will discover that rather quickly. It does not have any resemblance to the Old Testament. It is quite different. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Matthew 15, verse 6. Uh, The Talmud is just a collection of those traditions of the the Pharisees, the man-made traditions. And so by saying that Christianity was following the faith, Luke was saying that Judaism had lost the faith and was bankrupt and people were voting with their feet. Now, their bankruptcy is further shown by an unbiblical and therefore an undefendable theology. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, 
Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia disputing with Stephen, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. They didn't have answers. Their cocky self-assurance gave way to dismay when they realized that on issue after issue, Stephen was nailing them to the wall. Uh, Stephen obviously knew the scriptures inside and out, and they didn't have an answer. And I want to encourage you that when Christians do know the Bible, uh, they will find that uh, all of the religions of the world are just as bankrupt as Judaism was here. They will not have an answer to the ultimate issues in life. And the reason is because if you abandon the revelation of the omniscient God who alone can give absolutes, who alone can make universal statements, to that degree that you abandon that, to that degree you're going to have more and more holes in your system. You're not going to be able to uh, come up with a system that will stand up against scrutiny. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 that, yeah, there will be new religions that will be developed. He said there will be heresies that will come in. He said, don't worry about it because they will not be able to finally advance. He has nothing to fear. He says, they will progress no further, for their folly will be manifest to all. Amen? It's not us who needs to be intimidated. It really is those who hold to false religion that should be, because they're starting with their own finite mind, and there's always going to be limits and gaps in their system. Now, what happens when God's enemies see that they're losing the argument? Do they give up? No way. (laughs) They don't give up. They just resort to more vicious tactics. And you can see man's tendency to do this right from the time that children are really small. When uh, they start resorting to mockery and to uh, threats and abusive language, you know that they've already lost the argument and now they've got to defend their position in some other way. And that's the way it is with uh, these. Stephen shows how the truth can stand on its own two legs, but not all positions can. Not all positions can. When people are committed to a position rather than to truth, then they resort to unfair tactics. And we're going to take a look at some of these unfair tactics. Verse 11 speaks of secrecy. And I found it interesting when I was meditating on this passage that they would resort to secrecy when they're in the majority. I mean, they're the guys in power. Why do they have to have secrecy? Usually it's the liberals who are trying to take over a denomination who have these secret caucuses to try to figure out how they can do that. Uh, You wouldn't expect that these guys would, and yet this is something that you find all the time. Even in liberal denominations today, where they're in the majority, they still have these secret caucuses to try to figure out how do we deal with the conservatives that are in the denomination. Any time you lack truth on your side, you're going to try to find every advantage that you can find and uh, use it. If you can take people unaware, so much the better. This is uh, one of the reasons why I've mentioned in the past, it's made me so sad when there were uh, leaders in our denomination who would have these secret caucuses figuring out how do we get our agendas passed through in the General Assembly. Now, thankfully, many of them repented of that. But the thing that troubled me even more is that people in our, my own uh, camp, if you want to speak of camps and the denomination, it's a good denomination, but people in our own camp were saying, man, we need to respond to their secret caucuses by having our own secret caucuses and figuring out how do we counteract this. 
And I said, no way. Uh, if we cannot win this by an honest, open, sunshine discussion of the principles of God's word, there is something seriously wrong. The second unfair advantage that they try to use is inducements. Verse 11 says, they secretly induced men to say. Now, we're not told what the, the, the inducements were. It could have been bribes. It could have been social pressure that was put on to them. Maybe somebody had done something wrong and they're holding this over their heads and now they're playing their cards with them. We don't know. Um, but uh, there was some kind of an inducement. And I want to point out that even good, solid denominations, the best of denominations, can sometimes resort to inducements, uh, which is not a godly methodology. Uh, when I was at General Assembly one time, I had a friend who voted, I knew, something quite contrary to what he believed, and I asked him, how come you voted that way? And he says, well, we've got to pay our dues on some of these votes. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he says, well, down here... You can't get into positions of influence and, and uh, power unless you give certain people their way on certain votes. And I told him, man, you have sold your conscience. I don't, I don't see how you can do that. Now, he had some excuses to why he, he felt that it was justified to do that. But I have to admit, when I have been at General Assembly... There have been some issues in which I've got friends on both sides of the camp where I feel the real tension. I wish I didn't even have to be there to vote because you feel on your backside their displeasure burning through your back. And it's really hard to vote the right way. Now, if that's true, it just it doesn't surprise me at all when people in Washington, D.C., you know, after a while, give in to the pressure. Social pressure can be really really powerful, and it's really not fair that they use those intangible inducements, you know, to try to get you to vote in a certain way. But back to our text, this once again shows they don't trust that their position will survive on its own. They need other grounds to win on other grounds than the free market. Uh, the Greek for inducement has a strong idea of pressure being applied. The third unfair advantage is that they engage in a disinformation campaign, or what some people speak of as a smear campaign. Uh, the people who had been induced to speak said, uh, said this, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Well, nothing could be further from the truth and uh, their accusations against him, and you would think that religious folks would not stoop to such tactics as these, and yet they do. Uh, there's a book that uh, was written by Peter Hammond that you guys ought to read. Uh, it'll definitely make you pray a lot harder for your ruling elders and for your teaching elders. It's called Character Assassins, and it documents how uh, even in Christian circles, there has been this this tendency for character assassination, sometimes it's just pathological lies that go in the name of ministry, sometimes even engaged in by pastors. Very needed book, D. James Kennedy, Brian Abshire, Ted Bayer, and others have said amen to this book. This is a book that needed to be written, and it exposes the disinformation campaigns that Christians engage in, but more importantly, how we can respond to those, not be overcome by evil, but how to overcome evil with good. Now, the point I bring that, reason I bring that up is that we can't just be pointing the finger out at the world or back at the first century and say, aha, those guys were really bad. No, it can happen in our own circles as well. There are many in the church who have engaged 
if, if not in character assassination, they've had scurrilous attacks against theology that are just wrong, just absolutely wrong. Or sometimes false information about a ministry. Or on an occasion, maybe they will give complaints to the IRS to get a church into trouble. And you can understand when communists would do this in communist China against Christians, but why would Christians do it? And the answer is simple. We've got a fallen, sinful nature. Uh, We are prone to those temptations just like the world is. Now, we've got resources to resist it uh, that they do not, but there are those temptations. And I've heard Christians spread scurrilous disinformation about theonomy, Calvinism, covenant theology, and even after their gross misrepresentations have been shown to be absolutely wrong, they continue to spout exactly the same uh, things out there. I don't know how many times I have heard the false accusations that Calvinists don't believe in missions, or that theonomists believe the state will bring in the kingdom of God, or that Calvin, you know, they just, they come up with all kinds of crazy things, that we believe in salvation by law-keeping. I said, Now, who have you ever heard that believes that in the Reformed faith? But they will come out with this. Now, on the other hand, I have heard Reformed people go overboard in their criticisms of dispensationalism and Arminianism and make them appear to be worse than they really are. Okay? Um, So whether from the outside or the inside, this is the kind of unfair tactics that the church has had to face since the first century. What happened in the first century is... They spread the rumors that Christians were sacrificing their babies and eating the babies in communion meal. That'd be a hard accusation to live down. It made the Roman citizens so ticked off, they thought, man, Nero is justified in in the kind of persecution he's bringing against these Christians. When Nero accused the Christians of burning down Rome, and actually he was the one who did it, but to take the blame off himself, he blamed it on the Christians, it brought further persecution. And you can see this all over the place in other countries where uh, uh, there is widespread disinformation campaigns to make Christians look like they're unloyal, they're a cult, they're unethical, they're criminal. Uh, Many times this is not an indication of strength, it's an indication of weakness, a sense of frustration. It's not something we should be discouraged by when we see people attacking us this way. Just realize these guys don't have good answers, so they're having to resort to unfair tactics. They realize they're on the losing side of this debate. They don't know what else to do. And so if there really was a fair, open competition of ideas on a level playing field, their arguments would not win. I think this is one of the reasons why China feels like it has to be repressive. Communism is bankrupt. I think this is one of the reasons why there's so much repression of Christianity in India. Hinduism is bankrupt. They don't have the answers. Now, verse 12 uh, addresses the issue of inflaming the emotions. It says, and they stirred up the people. Uh, The dictionary uh, says, yeah, it means to stir up or to uh, incite, but the focus is on the emotions, he says. Focuses on the emotions. Have you ever noticed how often people raise their voices and get angry when they're starting to lose the debate. You'd think that'd be the time where we'd concede and say, yeah, that was a dumb idea. I don't know why I said that. But no, that's the time people really dig in their heels and they come up with all kinds of other things to try to prove what they are doing. They shout all the louder. If you have to shout to make your point, you've already demonstrated you're holding to a position of weakness, uh, not a position of strength. Let me just give you an example. 
the difference between parents who set out the rules and they consistently discipline when those rules uh, uh, have infractions brought against them. And they explain to the child very calmly, once again, you've broken this rule. This time it's not one whack, it's two whacks. And uh, they administer the discipline and they bring the scriptures to bear into that person's life and the forgiveness and everything that's brought versus the parents who yell and scream at their children. Those who yell and scream at their children are demonstrating a real position of weakness before their children that they're not in control. It's almost guaranteed that they do not insist on first-time obedience with their children. Now, they may discipline uh, once in a while or discipline haphazardly, but it's probably first-time obedience over here, third-time obedience over here. It's worn, worn, discipline, worn, 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 no discipline. And the children never know where the boundaries are, so they're testing. They're pushing for these boundaries. And the parents get so angry and so frustrated, they're always yelling at their children. There's a big difference between the two. One's in control. The other knows that they've... Uh, lost control. It's a position of weakness. And the same was true of the crowds here. The emotions of the people, the elders, and the scribes were incited. Uh, Discussions designed to incite anger are not usually discussions where people are trying to discover the truth, are they? Uh, They're holding to a position and come push or shove, I'm going to defend this position. And... uh, It doesn't matter how ridiculous I appear because my pride needs defending. There's something wrong when too much emotion creeps into your arguments, even when you're defending the truth. Even when you're defending the truth. It's a bad theology, a methodology, I should say. For one thing, I think it shows that you believe deep down inside that it's up to you to change the other person's heart and change their mind rather than it being up to God to change their heart and mind. You're arguing like an Arminian. You know, when I first became a Calvinist, I was arguing like an Arminian that these guys should become Calvinists. And I get so frustrated and emotional and, and use some of these unfair tactics, you know, in the way in which I'd argue. And I look back on that time and I realize I didn't have yet a full confidence that God can change their hearts. All I need to do is lay out the scriptures. And when they re- revile against it, realize that's what the flesh is going to do. That's exactly what we can expect it to do. But uh, I was arguing like an Ar- Arminian. And it is a bad methodology. One expression I learned years ago is that anger can all too easily blow out the light of intelligence. And this stands in such stark contrast to the methodology that Stephen used, that Lord willing we're going to look at next week, because Stephen had something that was defendable. He could relax in that. He had something that was defendable. These guys did not. But this flaming of the emotions causes people to be incited to violence. Point number five. Verse 12 goes on to say, And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. Now the two Greek words for came upon him and seized him indicate a use of force and violence and then dragging away. Uh, A person who is confident that he is defending the truth does not have to resort to violence in order to prove it. In fact, when you use violence, it's proving exactly the opposite. Let me just use an example from President Reagan's life. He had all kinds of vitriolic uh, language that was used against him and bad things that were uh, spoken against him. And if he had responded with the same kind of viciousness, they would have had that much more ammo to shoot at him. 
But he was able to dissipate and diffuse the situation with his words. And so it made it a whole lot harder for his enemies to dislike him. They still disliked him, you know, but it made it a lot harder for them to do that. Do you know what is the occasion for most violence, not all, but for most violence in the home? And the cause is the heart, but the occasion is often a husband's inability to win an argument or to persuade with words, and so he resorts to violence and his frustration. And this is often true. Whether he is right or whether he is wrong in the position he's arguing for, it's a frustration that he cannot convince uh, with his words, and it's a sign of weakness, not of strength. It's a sign of bankruptcy, not of truth. Usually when people resort to violence to prove a point, it's a sign that they really don't have a legitimate point to be making. At least they're succumbing to a wrong methodology. The sixth unfair tactic that was used was legal attacks. Uh, Verse 12 says that they took him uh, to the council. Now, if there was treason, if there was blasphemy, that would be one thing. But uh, here, it's not an attempt to win a debate. It's an attempt to close off all debate. And I think this is the strategy that they were trying to do. Either way it went, they would win. First of all, they're trying, if they can't win in court, at least by using the threat of, uh, 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 of the lawsuit, they're trying to cow him into intimidation, cow him into silence, in which case they've won. Or if they get a good judgment against him, then they will win as well because they will have shut him up. And this is a strategy many times that opponents of Christianity have used. Actually, it's not just a Christian issue. Businesses will sometimes use it against their competition. And when the upstart business doesn't have the resources to defend themselves in court, you know, they just say, well, it's not worth it. They back out. Because the courts are stacked against Christians in India, many times this has been used against Christians. A seventh unfair tactic that you can expect will happen to you. If you begin to have any degree of success, you can expect that this is going to happen to you. People will dig up dirt on you. Isn't that the case? And often the dirt is totally unrelated to the debate at hand. Totally unrelated. It's an attempt to discredit the person at a perceived weak point so that they won't listen to his strong points. Uh, Verses 13 and 14. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Now we're going to look at the specific nature of that accusation at a later time. There there is some complication to that. All I want you to notice right now is that they're searching for something to bring against Stephen because Stephen is so squeaky clean. Don't think that because you are clean that you're not going to have dirt dug up on you. People will find something that at least gives the appearance of being bad or at least is unpopular, even if it isn't bad. Uh, They will try to dig up dirt. Secondly, they hire false witnesses. They don't care whether it's true or not. Their goal is to discredit uh, and this has happened uh, even in churches. Uh, jo- happened to Jonathan Edwards. He was accused falsely of adultery, had to leave the pastorate, and it was only, I, do you know how many years w- was it later? Anyway, it was a long time afterwards that the woman just could not live with her conscience, and she finally confessed to the session, I made that all up. There wasn't any adultery. 
So it, it, it was just a lie. Thirdly, they didn't attack the popular message of forgiveness from sins head on. I mean, that would put them at a disadvantage. They, they just left that alone. No, they tried to divert it to a totally different subject that near and dear to the hearts of the people, and they take a little bit of truth, mix it with a little bit of error, and make people frustrated over something that they really dearly hold to. And this has been a strategy that, that uh, cults uh, have used uh, quite frequently. When you have them in the corner, you got them over a barrel, they change the subject. And they change the subject by bringing up something that's either so intriguing to you that you want to follow it down that rabbit trail, or so preposterous you feel like you've got to defend yourself on this thing, and you're running off down here on the defensive when you really had them in a corner over here. It's a, it's a tactic that is used all the time. Now, Stephen was being tried in a court of law. But sometimes today, people don't even bother to go to the court of law. They go to the newspapers. They go to other news media to do that. And it's very important that we not get sucked into these tactics, even when the tactics are being used against your own enemies. Do not believe everything that was written against President Bush, President Clinton, or other people, maybe whether you're for them or whether you're against them. They have their faults, but some of the criticisms that I've seen against presidents in the last 15 years are just ludicrous accusations. It's a flinging of mud. It's a desire to distort and to destroy rather than to illuminate. And we need to make sure we are not stooges in the hands of Satan and say, well, we don't want him in government. It doesn't matter. You have to use godly methodology. You can't be using ungodly methodology to be promoting a godly cause. It's just not right. Let me make another similar application. They didn't have mass communications back then, such as radio, TV, newspapers, to distort Stephen's words. would have been convenient. They didn't have that, but they used the next best thing. They used gossip and hearsay spread by word of mouth. And man, can it spread fast. And man, can it do damage. If you have given in to gossip... Once again, you have become a stooge of Satan. You are using Satan's methodology, even if it is a godly goal that you are pursuing. God will not honor that. Now, is Satan's tool effective? Man, you bet it's effective. If you examine the difference between chapter 5 and chapter 6 on the impact on the crowd, you'll see this. Take a look at chapter 5, verse 13. What does it say there in that last set, se uh, section? It says, the people esteemed them highly. It's just a few days later, after this misinformation campaign, all of a sudden these people are ready to string them up. Okay, they stirred the people against them is exactly what it says there. And so, uh, never put your confidence in public opinion polls. And it amazes me that politicians routinely do this. Public opinion can be changed so easily. It's constantly being changed. And it's a dangerous thing to bank upon. Now, that should not be the case with Christians. We should not be, as James words it, tossed to and fro by every uh, wind of doctrine. But the reason James has to admonish us not to be so unstable like that is because, again, we have a tendency to, to be that way. It is our flesh that Satan can appeal to. And so here's what I would recommend. Do not let your opinions 
of politicians or of other people be set in concrete just based on something you have read in one publication. In fact, I highly recommend that you read publications that come from quite diverse points of view. Uh, because then you might be able to piece together a little bit of the truth of what's going on there. Because uh, Scripture indicates when you hear one story on this side, and it sounds great until another person comes and examines it. That's Proverbs eighteen seventeen. Be willing to invest money in, in magazines that, that look at things from different perspectives. Uh, Proverbs thirteen ten says, Through presumption comes nothing but strife. But with those who receive counsel is wisdom. We cannot presume. Uh, we need to get the whole scoop by getting multiple counselors. Proverbs fourteen fifteen says, The naive believes everything. And I think we need to have a lot more skepticism in the stuff that we believe that's published off the web. Uh, some people keep emailing me things. They say, oh, man, have you heard this? And they're just fables. There's all kinds of stuff you need to be skeptical about out on the web. The eighth unfair method is to use the power of the state to suppress the truth. This is the strategy used by communists and Muslims and Hindu radicals and Buddhists and other false religions. They believe that the state has the authority to use its power within the free marketplace of ideas to impose a given position. Now, once again, to me, this shows the utter bankruptcy of that position. And Christianity doesn't need that. Christianity will grow in those nations despite all of those unfair tactics that will have been used against them. Why? Because, number one, it holds to the truth. And, number two, God's going to back up that truth. And we're going to be talking about that next week, Lord willing. And so it amazes me when evangelical Christians will use this method of, of Satan to, uh, to promote their social agendas. We don't need the state. In fact, the state has not got its responsibility to be opposing sin. Crime, yes, but the Bible defines what is crime. <clears throat> and yet Christians are constantly appealing to the state to get their social agendas advanced. The last unfair tactic used by these men was intimidation. Verse 15 says, And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. Now later we're going to be seeing why it was that Stephen was not intimidated. And I, I think that this Sanhedrin was just not used to seeing that lack of intimidation. But in any case, the, 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 the phrase looking steadfastly at him means to stare. One dictionary says, in each New Testament use, all but two of which occur in the Lucan writings, Atenidzo seems to emphasize the intensity of the look. So you've got 71 rulers staring at you with intensity. I doubt they had a smile on their face when they were staring at you. Now that would be intimidating to me. Maybe not to you, but it would be majorly intimidating to me have 71 people looking at me uh, like that. And there are people who use intimidation tactics like this to try to get their way with other people. It's an ungodly method. God wants truth to stand on its own two legs, and he's going to use his own means, which we're going to look at, uh, Lord willing, next week. He will use those to invincibly advance his cause. We do not need the weapons of Satan. We do not need them. Now, I've spent all of this time on those two methods for two purposes. First of all, so that we will avoid those. And secondly, so that you can see that the loyalty of Judaism was not to truth. It was simply to a position. Now that they're 
position has been embarrassed a little bit. They're looking for ways to validate their position. We have got to be so careful that we do not do the same thing. It's so easy in pride to make a statement, whether it's a theological statement or some other statement, and somebody else is criticizing it, and rather than saying, oh yeah, that was a stupid statement to make, we dig in our heels. It's a crazy thing, but in pride, we feel we've got to defend ourselves, and we argue, and we begin to raise our voice, we begin to use mockery and scorn and other unfair tactics in order to try to demonstrate that what we're standing for is true. So we need to be on guard against this methodology that the world, the devil, and our flesh uses. If you are so naive as to think that they're going to play uh, fair, <laughs> you're mistaken. Uh, your flesh does not play fair. It comes up unawares. It's just amazing. How many years have I been fighting against my flesh, and sometimes it still blindsides me and say, why did I say that? But you have to be quick in humility to confess it and say, you know, what, I, what just came out of my mouth was ungodly, and I, 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 I want to repent. Uh, I want to repent of that. And Satan uses these weaknesses in the world, the flesh, in order to oppose Christianity. Now, in complete contrast to all of this, Stephen uses resources that are not fleshly in his arguments. And I think there's a lot we can learn from this. He demonstrates the fullness of a confident Christianity. Verse 3 says the church needed men who were full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 5 says Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. Verse 10 repeats that thought, as does chapter 7, verse 45. So it's obviously a very important uh, term for Luke. And because I want to do justice to this concept of fullness, I'm going to spend a whole sermon on this next week under Roman numeral 2. And we're going to be seeing how all these resources are resources that came from outside of Stephen and were working within him powerfully, but they came from outside. For example, the Scriptures. The Scriptures are God's thoughts, not our thoughts. Now, we're supposed to be thinking God's thoughts after him, but they're God's thoughts, and that means that they have a whole lot more power to change than our thoughts do. And yet, how many times do we bring our words, our testimonies, because we're embarrassed to bring the Word of God into the equation, and so we're witnessing to a person. We say, you know, I had this wonderful experience. Once Jesus saved me, I felt so much peace in my heart. Well, let me tell you something. Buddhists can give a testimony. Muslims can give a testimony. All kinds of people have had weird experiences, okay? It's the Word of God that converts. And so he's taking something outside of himself, has made it a part of himself, and he's using it as a weapon. Faith is not only a gift of God, but it trusts in unseen realities. And it says here that he was full of faith. Faith is a weapon, according to Paul in Ephesians chapter 6. It's the shield of faith that enables us to charge into the fray, even when all of those darts and arrows are coming against us. Stephen was full of power, verse 8. Now, those authorities, they were in power from the world's perspective. From a spiritual perspective, Stephen was in power. And that power was at work whether he's alive or whether he is dead. It was powerfully at work through Stephen before his death, while he was being stoned, and afterwards. It was resulting in Saul's conversion. It's something that comes from outside. These authorities could not stop it. Stephen was full of... ...I will ever have. But they don't have any wisdom. I'm sure that some of those scholars in the first century had a lot more knowledge than Stephen had, 
but they didn't have any wisdom. There's a big difference between knowledge and wisdom. According to James, wisdom comes from above, and it's accompanied with a whole bunch of transformational graces, whereas knowledge by itself is something that just puffs up, right? Now, you can't have wisdom without knowledge because wisdom is applying knowledge, but wisdom is something that goes way, way beyond that. And so Stephen is using totally different weapons in his warfare than we Christians many times do. Frequently, what we do is we fall back by default into what we've, by habit, been used to doing uh, in our worldly ways. But here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And it's my prayer that you would learn to hate, to abominate the weapons of Satan, the methods of Satan. And point number one, that you would learn to love and to use the weapons that God gives. And point number two, that we're going to be looking at uh, next week. Because they've already been purchased by Christ. They're in your spiritual bank account in Christ in heaven. They're at your access day or night. And they are far more powerful, far more effective than the weapons of this world. And so if, like Stephen, you are to have a full and a confident Christianity, yes, you may get martyred like he does, you may get opposed, but let me tell you something, you're going to be able to turn the world upside down like Stephen and those other Christians did as well. May it be so. Amen. Father God, we ask your forgiveness, first of all, for those times where we have not trusted the power of your grace and of your wisdom, the the power of your word to be like a two-edged sword piercing into the, the, the midst of people's souls. Uh, we ask your forgiveness that we have abandoned the spiritual weapons that you have given to us and instead have opted for the tactics, the methods uh, of Satan. And I pray, Father, that you would purge us from those, that you would make us find those distasteful. Instead, we would find and use those methods which give you alone the honor and the glory and the majesty. Father, I pray that these words would be instilled in our hearts, that they would be lived out, they would not be forgotten, but Father, that they would transform us, change us into a people that are effective, just as Stephen was effective, and as the other Christians were effective. And Father, may we be a part of that generation, that Joshua generation that takes the conquest of Canaan. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.